Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Welcome to week 15 of our study through uh, systematic theology. So far, as a quick recap, we've studied bibliology, the doctrine of the scriptures. We've studied theology proper, the doctrine of God the Father. And we just finished a short three-week course on Christology, the doctrine of Jesus, the Messiah, his personhood, his works, and his ministry. So we stop here, as is our habit, after each section of systematic theology and do a, a Q&A. And um, there's a, just a quick reminder before I ask J.D. to pray for us. The reason why we're doing this class on systematic theology is because we are exhorted in Scripture to read over, to contemplate, to pray over Scripture so that we might worship our Creator more rightly. And it's very cool that we have so many people that are willing and desire to do this in this class. We need to extend our biblical knowledge on each of these topics and themes beyond just some fuzzy idea of maybe what we were incompletely taught or beyond just a couple of verses that inform us on these topics. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to know know what we believe so that we can defend it to a skeptical world and in our own hearts as well. So that's what we seek to do is to find out what the Bible says on these topics and to bring scripture to bear on them. And again, as a reminder, we don't do things like this, this little Q&A. We've said before, we're not all biblical scholars. Well, maybe J.D. I would consider a biblical scholar. But in obedience and gratitude for what he's done for us, we come, like I said, and we learn and we study these things. And it is wonderful to be in a class like this with all of you who desire to learn these things. So we're going to talk about them this morning with a Q&A on Christology, but I'll ask J.D. to, to bless our time here together, and then we'll jump in. Okay. Father, thank you for your word and for the truth that you have revealed to us. I thank you for this church and for those who desire to come and to study your word and to have their minds renewed and to have their hearts filled with joy as they see you more clearly. I do ask your blessing on this conversation, this informal discussion we get to have with, as a church family. Please guide our, our words and our thoughts. Help us to think rightly of you so that we might um, rightly love you and worship you and obey you. I ask that as we discuss these things now, it would be a, a unifying time and a time of sharpening one another as we look into your word. So we humbly come before you and just ask for your blessing in all this. Amen. So as we come to discuss Christology, uh, again, this was a short section. We only did three weeks on this. Um, But obviously, this is a critical topic. Um, As we got together to discuss what kind of questions we might encounter and what's the conversation going to look like, we realized it's really hard to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, without going into the hypostatic union or without discussing atonement or propitiation. Um, As Stephen said in his intro to uh, Christology, if you didn't have Christ, you wouldn't have the Christian faith. We would have no hope for eternal life. We would have no good news. We'd have no gospel. So I don't want to steal your thunder, but what we're going to do is I'm going to give each of our teachers, in the order that they taught, Stephen first and then Carrie and then J.D., just a quick opportunity to give us a synopsis just to refresh and review what we went over and then we're going to open it up to you all and I I was going to encourage all of you not just for questions we love to hear the questions but anything that was new or enlightening to you or something that you'd never been taught through this series 
uh, feel free to share that because that, that is wonderful. That means that, uh, that we're learning, which is the idea here. So feel free to give us feedback on that and then questions. So Stephen, I'll throw it over to you. Give us a quick synopsis of what you taught on and then Carrie and then, and then JD. Awesome. Well, we started out with splitting Christology up between the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I covered the person of Jesus Christ, and we split that up into the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. So we looked at the divinity, we looked at lots of passages on the deity of Christ, we talked about Christ's preexistence and his eternal sonship. Um, And then in his humanity, we talked about the incarnation, taking on human flesh, we talked about the virgin birth, and we also talked about the hypostatic union, uh, which is two natures and one person inseparably united for eternity. So that's the very brief summary of what we talked about. Hopefully that'll trigger some, some questions in your mind about the person of Christ. And so in, no. There we go. Um, in our second segment on Christology, uh, had the opportunity to look at the work of Jesus Christ, um, specifically his work of redemption um, or his work of atonement, I think as we more... more Uh, commonly referred to it uh, during our study. So to begin with, we looked at uh, the need behind Christ's work of atonement. Um, And so went all the way back to Genesis 1 and uh, looked at the the fall and the curse and um, Adam uh, as the first man and how his um, rebellion against God became our rebellion, um, that it is uh, this sinfulness, this nature that is passed down uh, through the generations, that we are under uh, that curse of, of sin and death uh, that Adam uh, inherited by his rebellion, Adam and Eve. Um, and so then we looked at the, um, the causality, the, the um, I guess, sort of providence of the atonement and going all the way back to God's eternal plan of redemption um, and the, the divine counsel that uh, chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And uh, from there, we looked at the, the necessity of, of the atonement and how um, once this determination was made in the divine counsel of the Trinity, um, it was necessary uh, that Christ should die on our behalf um, and make atonement for sin. Um, after that, we looked at the, the nature of the atonement itself and kind of touched on some key central themes that are a part of that. We looked at um, uh, the ideas of reconciliation, of propitiation, of ransom, justification, and sacrifice. Um, but really tried to spend most of our time looking at this central overarching theory of the atonement that we wanted to make sure we had a really solid grasp of, and that is that of penal substitution, um, that Jesus Christ, as, um, as the Lamb of God, paid the penalty on our behalf for our sins. Um, and then just kind of in closing, we're able to look at uh, the culmination of Christ's atoning work um, in his Resurrection. So that's that's what we kind of covered in that second portion. So, as Stephen said, he covered the person of Christ. So his divine nature, human nature, 
Carrie and I were tag teaming the work of Christ. And if Carrie's um, focus was on Christ's passion, his suffering, his death, and what that meant for us, my um, glad and joyful task was to talk about Christ's exaltation. And I'll just say this was much uh, easier and more fun, in a sense, than talking about providence and concurrence and free will and all the stuff I had to cover in the last, uh, last Sunday school lesson I taught. But um, Christ's exaltation, um, we walked through his resurrection, through the ascension of Jesus, and Christ's session, the fact that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and looking at what Christ's ongoing ministry is today, and remembering how he didn't just die for us, he also lives for us today. He currently ministers on our behalf. He's not done um, functioning even as a savior to us. He still represents us, pleads our case as our great high priest. And then we very briefly just acknowledged the fact that he's coming back and some of the things that will happen. So Jesus isn't done. He is coming back. There is more to do, and we look forward to that. So that's the, the brief summary of my lesson was the exaltation of Christ, his resurrection, ascension, his current session in heaven, and then looking at his future return. All right. Thank you, each gentleman. So now it's your turn. What are, what's on your minds? Do we have anybody that wants to start the questions or give feedback on, on something that you learned? If not, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask these guys. But I'll give it a minute here, see who's the brave first person to come up and start the Q&A. Joe Harvey. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my first comment would be this class is incredible. All the stuff that you've done. And J.D., you get to pick and choose, so you made Scott do the tough one. <laughs> That's good. Anyway, I would, I would, I'd like to make, this is for the group, however you want to answer. I'd make a declarative statement. I want to bracket this a little bit. Make a declarative statement, then just rearrange the words a little bit and make the statement, statement with the same words, and then you guys tell me what you think, if there, is there the difference between them or what, okay? So here we go. God does what is right. I've just rearranged them a little bit, and I want to say, what God does is right. And I'd like to hear if you guys think there's a difference between those or make a comment on that or however you want to do that. So thank you. God does what is right. And the second part is what God does is right? Correct. Okay. I can go. Go ahead. All right. And this goes a little bit back to our last section. Yeah. 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 I think it bleeds back a little bit, but... Um, it's important to, I think, parse that. I think it's an important distinction to make this concrete idea that God isn't accountable to a standard of good, but instead that God is the standard of good, which is your second statement, that all that he does is good, yes, but that in himself is all goodness, um, so he's not accountable to something outside of himself, but anything he does is manifesting himself, showing himself that he is the standard. So I think there's an important distinction there. Um, I would agree that you know, the, the second statement is probably um, informative to our theology and something to keep in mind that... Um, <clears throat> 
God himself is, is the definition of right, um, of goodness and of holiness. Um, I think it's also important to recognize our human limitations when we come at um, this level of theology um, because I think that there is a danger if we don't recognize, you know, in all humility, our humanness and our finiteness, um, that uh, because we need this system and this structure to define goodness and rightness and holiness and justice for ourselves, um, it's easy to kind of, kind of arrive at some sort of arbitrariness in our understanding of how God operates. Um, and that we want to caution against that as well. And I think it just comes down to humility. Um, so God defines goodness and righteous, rightness, um, but he also um, he gives us such clear descriptions of what that quality of his goodness and righteousness is. Um, so in our minds, if we take away that, well, there is this higher standard that we adhere to, um, then we're kind of cast adrift. Um, but when we think about God and his defining what is good, um, we need to keep in mind what he has revealed to us about what his good is like, that it is, that it is holy, um, that it is just, um, and so bear all of those things in mind when we, when we affirm that God defines what is right. Um, he cannot sin, and uh, I think it's impo- important to keep those things in tension. My mind was going the same directions as Carrie's. Um, when you think through a question like that, it might make you feel vulnerable because you think, well, this God then is unpredictable. He can do whatever at any time, and it almost seems arbitrary. But to underscore what Carrie just said, what has he revealed about himself? What he has revealed should inform what we expect because God does not change. So his immutability, the fact that he is constant and unchanging, means we can expect him to always do what is holy, what is right, what is good, what is loving. We just need to make sure we're defining those terms with the data that he's given us already. So Carrie said what he's already revealed about himself. So God is in no way arbitrary or capricious or unpredictable. He always acts in, in harmony with his own nature. Now the problem is, to go to what Stephen said, we tend to think that, okay, this, these things we've learned are some external thing that God is accountable to, and that's not how it works. He's not accountable to anything, as you said, external to himself. He's the definition. So if something that God does seems to conflict with with what we think is right or loving or good, then the problem is we need to tweak our definition of what is right, holy, loving, and good to include whatever it is that God is doing and have the humility, like Carrie said, to recognize we don't see everything and understand everything. So it would be a premature judgment for us to be like, you know, imagine Joseph sitting in prison in Egypt and forming conclusions about God's purposes It's too early. It's too early to decide whether or not God is good or holy or just or or faithful if you're Joseph still sitting in the prison because God's not done yet. So we need to withhold that judgment and not not accuse God of those things because 
He's working at a, at a higher level than what we can see, and he works throughout time, and it's a big picture. And so we need to withhold those types of, you know, there's, there's two types of questions. Um, and we don't want to question God the wrong way. There's a good kind of question that wants to learn and has an open mind and wants to understand. It says, God, give me, you know, truth because I, I don't understand this and I'm willing to receive it. There's another kind of question that's actually an accusation. It's the kind of questioning that a prosecuting attorney does. And we don't ask God those kinds of questions. We can ask honest questions that are willing to, to learn and receive answers and even willing to hear the answer of, you don't get to have the answer. <laughs> and that, that's an answer as well. Um, we just want to withhold the kind of skeptical, accusatory questions um, because God um, is not accountable, again, to some exterior standard. So. Absolutely. Again, that's part of the beauty of scriptures. We see that has said that steadfast love, that faithfulness, we see that play out. And so we can know if God has always been faithful in the past, we should expect him to be faithful today. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good theology put to music. So not Christology, but it's a good question. So, But also does apply to Christology. Yeah. I think it plays in with the penal substitution idea. I mean, people take offense at the clear presentation that God would sacrifice his own son mm -hmm. to save others. And they say, that's not my God. That's, that's not the God that I think this external standard that I'm holding him to. And so, yeah, it does kind of play in when you look at the gospel message, when you look at Christ to say that's, when we start putting ourselves in the judgment seat, we're creating ourselves as the external standard. What other questions do we have? <laughs> Try sitting up here. It's not as, not as scary as singing in front of people. So I have two questions um, on limited atonement. My first question is you find scripture that, um, you know, talks about the world. And I know that there are beliefs that Christians throughout the world, so it's just to save believers. But then you have other scripture like Romans 5.12 where it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Um, and then it goes on to talk about how Christ died for the sins of the world um, for Christ. So um, I guess my question is, is um, trying to search through scripture those seem contradictory to each other, and I know scripture never contradicts itself. So I guess, what would you guys have to say on that? And then, what was my second question? I think my, I can't remember my second question, so we'll just go there, maybe, so. Do you wanna go first, or do you want me to go first? You're looking for something. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, you go first. Okay. <laughs> um, great. Great question, Allison. Um, 
We'll give a brief response to it, but we have a whole chapter, a whole section coming up in this class that will be specifically on, um, on redemption and on salvation, soteriology, the study of the doctrine of salvation. So we will deal with, with all of that um, more at length. We'll deal with, and we'll deal specifically with um, the doctrines of grace and things like that, um, election, predestination, uh, the nature of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, those sorts of things. But a brief answer I would give. First of all, I would affirm what you're saying that at first glance, there's things that seem contradictory. Um, God so loved the world. You see that um, in, in Colossians, he's reconciling the world to himself. So on one end of the spectrum, you have universalism, where everybody's going to be saved because it says world. And on the other end of the spectrum, you, know, you, have, you have a different view. So, um, and, and as I talk about a lot, you know, we have fun. We get together and have breakfast before we do these panels, and we pick each other's brains. We ask each other questions, and it's a lot of fun. And in some sense, this time is just the overflow of us hanging out um, at the Big Biscuit or something or Perkins or whatever, wherever we are. Um, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, but what I was going to say, <clears throat> I, we always talk about together how our goal in theology is not balance. Balance implies that there's all these things that are equally valid, and we just try to find the, the, you know, the, the composite you know, view that kind of bridges the gap. And our, our aim is not to be balanced. Our aim is to be biblical. So we want to study Scripture. And like you said, a fundamental presupposition we have is that Scripture does not contradict itself. So we see passages that talk about reconciling the world or Christ dying for the sins of the world. And then we see passages in John where Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And it seems to be more narrowly focused. So which is it? And again, we're not trying to balance those two. We're trying to say, let's study them both in, the, in context. Let's study the sweep of Scripture, everything the Bible has to say. And, and maybe our first read was not the most accurate reading of one of those passages. And maybe one of them will inform the other. So I, so I won't fully answer that question, but I'll affirm the way you're approaching it and say that's good. Keep studying that, thinking through that. And one, one thing I would offer is that everyone who's not a universalist, everyone who believes that not everyone is saved, but I'm not pointing at Stephen, I'm just <laughs> saying on this end of a, a spectrum theologically, um, let's say those who would hold to an unlimited atonement and those who would hold to a limited view of the atonement, I prefer um, um, particular redemption or definite atonement. I like those terms better personally. Um, but within this camp, of everyone limits the atonement somehow. So you're either saying it's the will of man that limits the atonement or it's the will of God that limits the atonement. But I would wager that all of us in here today believe in a limited atonement. All of us um, believe that the work of the cross is not applied to everyone. So who is it that determines that? And so I think that's just a good thing to acknowledge up front. And um, we'll talk more about it when we get to soteriology. So, um, Allison, I, I have to admit that, um, you know, I am surprised uh, at myself, I guess, that I would even really be speaking on the subject of limited atonement, especially from the perspective that I'm at today, because um, this was one of the things that uh, back in, in Bible college I could really get into a, a knockdown, drag out fight over. And um, today, I, I feel like my uh, Calvinistic flower has 
three and a half petals on it. Um, so it's, it's a process of, of spending time in the scriptures and asking the Lord and, and the Spirit to apply them to our understanding. Um, one of the things that I was kind of excited by as I was studying through uh, this doctrine of the atoning work of Christ is um, the, the doctrine of this um, eternal plan of redemption and the love of the Father that is an electing love that we see in, in Ephesians. So I was just going to read real quickly from Ephesians <clears throat> and chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So I think it's what has been um, most influential in my understanding of the atonement and its scope, I guess, is um, seeing how foundational and elemental these, these truths of an electing love that God um, chose to to pour out on us before the foundations of the world. And I think that that kind of bleeds over into my understanding of, of the scope of the atonement. And the other aspect that, you know, these other kind of foundational truths that can inform how I understand limited atonement is, is that of penal substitution and just God's justice in paying the penalty for sin. Um, and I had to ask myself, would God be just if Jesus paid the penalty for all the sins of mankind, and then to those who refuse to believe and to put their faith in him for God to punish those sins again uh, when those individuals are condemned in hell. Um, so those are, those are questions that we, we kind of have to wrestle through. But um, yeah. It's, his love is, is an electing love and is a part of his plan of redemption. So yeah, the answer to that question is informed by understanding God's sovereignty and, and election, as Carrie said. It's informed by our understanding of God's justice. And it's informed also, I think, by our understanding of what's actually happening at the cross. Is the cross making actual atonement for sin? That's what Carrie just presented, that God was judging sin, not making potential atonement, but making actual atonement. And so that's why I like, you know, definite atonement. Um, I, I like that term because there's, there's a real transaction that's happening at the cross, um, the, way, the way we're understanding Scripture. It's not just a potential thing that people could come and participate in if they so choose. There's an actual transaction that's happening. Um, and so you look at it, it's passages, you know, informed. You know, we read all these passages informed by our understanding of God's sovereignty, God's justice, and what's actually happening at the cross. And that, that helps us to navigate those passages that at first glance, on an initial read, might seem to indicate something different. Um, so, and again, we will get to these things more in depth in future weeks. doctrines that you guys taught on are because of heresies that have happened throughout church history. You know, you teach on the atonement or the nature of Christ, the deity, humanity, mm -hmm. because there have been heresies in the church that have been condemned. 
but the Cerseys keep coming back. So I'm curious what you guys think of some of the current heresies that we should be aware of in reference of Christology, whether in churches or cults that are like maybe more obvious or in books or trends that are common or even in our own hearts that are easy to believe, just what some current Christological heresies that we should be aware of. I, I would like to jump in here, even though I'm the moderator, that was gonna be my question for Stephen since he taught on the person of Christ. I mentioned to the guys, I was brought up in a church that taught a pacifistic Jesus. That was my Jesus that walked around in a robe and sandals and said cool things that were profound and people would go, whoa. I never realized he was the co-creator or that he would judge the world. That was not the Jesus I was taught. So that was the question I was going to ask you too along those lines. What, what kind of misconceptions or inaccuracies about the person of Jesus can lead to apostasy? Yeah, it's a great question. There was a lot of church history I got to read a little bit up on and study and preparing for the hypostatic union. It is amazing to see a lot of these responses that the church was making in these creeds or these councils was because people were getting it wrong and perpetuating a false teaching, um, heresy. And the Chalcedon Council uh, was a primary one about the hypostatic union particularly, and the reason they, they come together and make this statement is to try to, through negative theology, saying not, 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 to give us boundary lines. And so we, in our human nature, obviously, in our finite thinking, sometimes don't even know the boundary lines, and so we walk over them, we cross them. And some of them Today, I would say, always come down to, you know, if you remember that image in the lesson of Christology, when we talked about the hypostatic union, you've got Jesus Christ, the God-man. And if you think about it, it really comes down to, am I, one, not believing that Jesus was fully God or truly God? So if he is deficient as not fully God, or if he is not God at all, then I'm gonna mess it up. I'm not gonna know the Jesus of scripture, and same with man. If he's not fully man or truly man, he's just a mirage or an image, then I'm gonna miss a lot in regards to scripture and have to contradict why he was tired and hungry and slept and ate. So it's really when you decrease what scripture says, you're going to cross the line. So Jehovah's Witness, they will say that Jesus became God, right? I haven't studied. He created. He was a created being. So having the lost concept of preexistence, they're saying that he is something less than God. And if he's less than God, then he can't atone for the sins of all of his people. So you, you see this domino fall out. Jehovah's Witness would be one. Mormons say that Jesus became God. Um, again, falling into the same pit. And like Scott was talking about, there's churches that also teach that he's just this hippy-dippy, friendly, you know, Jesus is my friend, and that's it, um, then you're going to not have someone that can atone for your sin. So on the other side, though, there are heresies that talk about, really, that Jesus didn't take on humanity, that um, one, his, one person in history described it as Jesus' deity is the ocean, and that his humanity was just a drip, into the ocean, that it just was consumed. And that's why we say without mixture or confusion, these are two distinct natures. And so if he was God and not man, then how can he ever atone for our sin? How can he ever be our high priest? 
He became like us in every way, Hebrews says. So those are really the, the two major pitfalls. When you decrease his deity or his humanity, or when you try to mix them. So those are kind of what I would say the summaries of how we fall off the horse in regards to Christology and the person of Christ. In, in terms of um, current errors regarding the, the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, um, something that's happened recently over the last couple years, as many of you know, um, our culture is rapidly changing and rethinking many things in terms of human nature, our gender, our sexuality, and there have been some who have taken passages of Scripture that say Jesus was tempted in every way like us, yet was without sin. And they've sort of projected their own confusions and problems onto Christ to say that Jesus dealt with same-sex attraction. Or Jesus was confused and had to deal with gender dysphoria. I've literally read people saying that. And they're shoehorning a lot of things into that verse. And there's an old quote. Some people attribute it to Mark Twain. Some people to Rousseau that said, you know, in the beginning... God made man in his own image, and ever since, we've been trying to return the favor. So we have to be careful about that, not projecting too much of ourselves onto Jesus. And so there have been people who have looked at Christ's you know, singleness and, and the fact that it says he was tempted like we are, and people tend to project their own confusion, their own problems onto Jesus, which um, you know, we'd, we'd have to unpack what that verse is actually saying. It's not saying that Jesus struggled with every specific temptation that you and I may struggle with. Um, but we have to be very careful about that because what that, you know, there's two types of temptation. There's a temptation that comes from without. You think about Satan in the garden, or you think about Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there's another kind of temptation that James talks about that comes from our own desires, our own twisted, corrupt nature. And Jesus didn't have a sin nature. So the deity of Christ, specifically his virgin birth, is important because it shows us he doesn't have that, that same sin nature in, inherited from Adam. Um, and so we have to be very careful not to confuse that. I don't know if I, like, I do think that's a heretical statement to project those things onto Jesus. I'd probably call it a, a Christological error because it starts chipping away at the foundation of Christ's, um, his, his, really his nature as being sinless and the virgin birth. So those are some conversations that are happening, not out in the world necessarily, but even within some churches People are willing to entertain those ideas and those discussions and make those statements. And that's where we have to have a strong Christology and say, no, um, Jesus did not struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Those are, those are things that are born out of a, a, uh, a corruption in our own nature. And Jesus didn't have that corruption. So, yes, he was tempted, but um, he didn't have a sin nature. We have to, we have to maintain that. Or are, we, are we still going on this one? So, I I think yeah, I think yeah. So uh, as far as atonement heresies, um, I think that a lot of the of the false doctrine, the false teaching, and, and beliefs that are out there in the church could fall under um, the the theory of the atonement that has to do with um, a moral example. Um, and so there's a lot of teaching that I've I've come across where to replace the doctrine of penal substitution because that's not palatable. Um, Jesus' death on the cross is seen as a um, identification with us in our weaknesses or as an example for us of suffering through trials um, or uh, anything but uh, God the Father 
placing the guilt of our sins and punishing them on, on his son. Um, and so there are lots of different kind of ways to explain that away. Um, and I think at its, at its root, um, the, these theories of moral example for, for the nature of the atonement kind of goes back to, um, Harvey, your initial question about um, God and his, his defining of goodness and rightness uh, in his own essence, in his own nature. Um, so people look at a doctrine like penal substitution and Jesus hanging on the cross for our sins and say, that's, that's child abuse. Uh, my God doesn't do that. Um, and so to absolve him of, of guilt, um, they come up with other explanations. And so I think that that's at the root of, of explaining away penal substitution and, and diving into um, these other theories of the atonement. Um, and uh, so it kind of goes back to the open theism um, to, to try and keep God from having any uh, culpability for this. All right, we've got about six minutes left here. Any other questions? Or even, like I said, any, anything that was an epiphany for you in this last series on Christology, something you learned? We'd love to hear those too. If not, I've got one final question for the three, but uh, we'll give you a minute here. Every, oh, come on, go ahead. I don't think that's going to be part of this class, but we can talk about it. Come ask me later, and we'll get into it. Anything else? <laughs> okay. I did have one question that came up in our group I thought was worth discussing. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, to the heavenly father not my will but yours so does jesus have two wills who wants to handle that yes <laughs> pick me pick me so we did talk about that passage and it's actually something that was helpful for me in understanding the hypostatic union a little bit was that jesus is taking on a full human nature. And this isn't just flesh that defines that, but it's a mind, it's, it's a heart, it's the affections, and it's a will. Um, so it's important to understand that within the Godhead, when we talked about the Trinity, there is one will. One will, one essence in three persons, right? And we recognize that in this amazing gift of God giving his son to us, that in the incarnation, he takes on a nature that was not his previously. And in that, he takes to himself a human nature that has a human will. But what we recognize in that too is that there's not this inner strife or battle where he's, his divine will is at odds with his human will. But instead, what we see is this submission aspect, not subordination, but submission to the Father, that we, 
in this room all know and experience, right? When we realize that there's desire for um, not experiencing pain, but that we recognize that God prunes and grows and sanctifies us through suffering. So when Jesus is sitting there saying, not my will, but yours be done. He's, he's expressing both before, and I would, if somebody wants to look up the verse for me, both before and after, he's affirming the will of God, the Father. He's saying he recognizes what God's will is before, and then he says, I, I don't want to experience this real, actual pain and suffering that is injustice, that it's not his punishment, that he's taking our, our punishment, our pain, our penalty. And to recognize then and say, but not what, what I want instead, not that I want to avoid this, but I'd rather, Lord, submit to your will and recognize that your way is best. And to, to really look at that passage in whole and to, to see that there's not this conflict in the sense that um, he's wanting to go a different direction because he has this internal temptation and sin-infected nature that wants to pull. That's what we would relate and, and, and put on him, but that's where understanding the incarnation and the virgin birth, that there's not any sin, that he is sinless, that there's not this internal pull to say, I, I want to do what God doesn't want me to do. I want to disobey, but rather to say that this is actually difficult. Um, it's real pain, it's real suffering, it's real injustice, but yet I recognize and see that God's will, his desire, his way is best, and I want to come in alignment with that. And there's, there's a real, I would say it's almost like, you know, if you have these united wills, they're not two different arms that I can, you know, put one up and put one down and they're, they're, they can go a different range, but rather they're, they're pinned together. And if you move one arm, the other one's going with it. They're, they're united inseparably, but without confusion. And that's, that's how I would kind of talk through that passage at the Garden of Gethsemane and understanding uh, the hypostatic union and what it looks like in there. That Remember, we don't say that that is his human nature speaking, but rather we'd say that a person is speaking. And in his personal real statement that it reveals in that text, right, juxtaposed to it, that the divine and the human nature of Christ. We've, we've got, uh, we've hit our, our end point. Um, real, real quick, each of you, I know when I teach, there's always something I didn't get to because of time limitation or I just, I wanted to, but I had to cut it out. Is, is there anything that you didn't get to say or didn't get to teach, we'll start with you, Carrie, in your lesson that you wish you had the opportunity to just really quickly mention. Uh, yeah, so there's something I, I, um, I was blessed by and enjoyed kind of meditating on that I didn't get to really highlight, um, and that was one aspect of um, God's plan of redemption and the, this eternal counsel of the Trinity to save um, and that was um, how the Son undertakes the commission from the Father willingly. Uh, it's easy to look at Jesus hanging on the cross, and a lot of the church does see him as some sort of a victim, um, that this is being inflicted upon him against uh, his, his will. And uh, according to the Scriptures, that is not the case. Um, we're told that he, let's see, Um, hope I can find it. Wrote down this reference. 
Yeah, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, offered himself without blemish. Um, so that was something that I, I didn't highlight um, going through the lesson, but would like to emphasize now that he, he undertakes willingly this commission from the Father, and he offers himself on our behalf. And everything that he endured on the cross, um, he endured willingly. Um, he, said, he tells, he tells um, Peter, do you, do you think not that I could ask my father and he wouldn't immediately send me uh, legions of angels? Um, but he does this to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill his father's commission. He does it willingly. One thing that I didn't have time to get into, um, some of you may have picked up on this, but as we were talking about the ascension of Christ and then his session being seated at the right hand of the Father, you might have noticed that I never quoted Second Samuel, never, um, never connected that to the Davidic covenant. Now, some theologians would say that Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, that there would be one of his descendants who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Um, I don't see that as the complete fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I think there is a future aspect still to the Davidic covenant and that when Christ returns and his throne is established here on earth, that that will be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So if you felt like maybe I missed out and left out a few verses, that was on purpose because um, I, I think there's still more to come even with the fulfillment of God's promise to David. So I don't think that uh, being seated at the right hand of the Father is synonymous with um, reigning over Israel and, and fulfilling his promise to David. Um, I think there's more going on there. But that takes us into our section on eschatology, so I didn't want to crack open that can of worms. And I would just mention, oh, one. Uh, in regards to the preexistence of Christ, it was really cool to see Christophanes, or what the Son of Christ Son of God, Jesus Christ, is doing in the Old Testament. So there's a whole, a whole section there that you can go and dig in. And then impeccability of Christ. I'll give you some homework. If you're interested in, you know, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He was sinless. But could he sin or was he not able to sin? What that looks like. So impeccability of Christ would be a fun topic, but I had to skip over it. Ran out of time. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for teaching on Christology, you guys. Um, We'll let everybody go for now, then come back to worship. Come back next week. We're going to open up a new area in systematic theology. We're going to go into pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we'll see you then.